Good morning. Great to see everybody today. So the elders, I've got a checklist up here I've got to go through. First, Tom sees me and he goes, can you introduce yourself? So check, I'm Dennis. Uh, we'll take that off the list. Secondly, uh, Tim Stutzman is our, our full-time preacher and he's on travel. So if you don't like this, the good news is you don't get this next week. Uh, so Tim will be back. We think the world of him, uh, miss him. And for those who don't know him, you're missing out. Uh, we are really blessed as a congregation. But it did remind me on something when I was talking to Tim recently. Uh, I told him, Tim, I tell you what, you're fantastic. But if you're ever out of town, make sure you pick somebody who doesn't show you up, makes you look good. And the second I finished that, he said, hey, Dennis, can you preach for me next Sunday? <laughs> Be careful what advice you provide. Uh, so here I am. Church, this morning, I want to talk to you just very briefly on a few points about godly wisdom. And I've got one slide that's going to be a little busy because it's got a proverb on it. And so there's your clue, trying to give you a hint. There's a treasure map, there's an X. Proverbs chapter 2, the first 11 verses, whether you're on a phone, whether you have it memorized, or you have a paper Bible, whatever you have in front of you, I asked to get that out because I'd like you to read that with me when we go through this. But this is really going to be the basis of our text this morning. And I want you just to think about the state of the world and where we are, because there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom, especially when we talk about godly wisdom. And I would put it on a graph, but it doesn't scale very well. But if we took all of mankind's knowledge, and we think about that knowledge from the beginning of time all the way up until, let's say, 1845, and we represented that by a single inch, and then we looked at the next 100 years, from 1845 to 1945, that would have grown about threefold, be about three inches, in just 100 years. And if you took 1945 to 75, about another 30 years, that would roughly be the size of the Washington Monument. And for those who want to fact check me, it's about 550 feet or 6,600 and something inches, right? What would that be from 1975 until today? We hear about computing Moore's Law and the ability of extrapolation and how much we advance over and over again in such short periods of time. We're learning a lot scientifically. But I would ask you, how much are we learning spiritually? As we get smarter and smarter, allegedly, take a look at our society. Where are we at with crime, war, poverty, depression, addiction, prejudice? It doesn't seem like we're doing a lot better for all this knowledge that we've accumulated. In fact, I would argue for every advancement that we seem to have, there's some type of corresponding declination when it comes to godly wisdom. It's because we're relying more and more on ourselves and our own understanding and not on God. And the outcome of that is fairly predictable. Where does that lead us? When man believes he's self-sufficient, we're in a bad spot. And as societies progress, this is always the natural outcome. More reliance on self, less reliance on God. So we're going to look at a singular proverb today. And a proverb is nothing more than an illustration. The Bible is full of them. And it really is meant to take something fairly complex and break it down into something simple. The Hebrew word for this actually is to be like, or the phrase. It's like an illustration within our life that you can relate to. 
And this is about as simple as it gets. But it's so much wisdom, we couldn't unpack it all this morning. So we're not going to try. We're going to take a look at a little of it. So if you'd now turn to chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Like I said, very busy slide, but you can follow along in your own Bible. And I'm going to read it. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And He preserves the way of His godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. How powerful that is. If there's one takeaway you get from this, it's the idea of value and how important wisdom is. How would you search for treasure which is certain? Where would that be in your priority list? If you knew in your backyard you had a treasure of untold value, would you go about your daily business? I'm not going to go look for it. I've got a few other things to do. You know, I'm going to binge watch this TV show. I've got to have, nothing happens before I have coffee. Right? So I'm going to have that coffee. We would value that. We would put it on our first order of priority. We would seek it like there's nothing else happening in our lives. Because it is the cornerstone. It is the absolute cornerstone for us to understand the relationship we're to have with God. And that first is to determine where God should be in our life. That's the idea of where this wisdom comes from and where it should drive us. This idea of a shield, justice, preservation, discretion. All of these are the promises wrapped up in one proverb. So we're going to unpack it a little bit. And the first thing we're going to look at, we're going to look at a few points. This idea that wisdom looks ahead of us. And I want you to think about this. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. This isn't about building towers or castles or houses. This is about planning and understanding how to get to the finish line. This is about taking an account. How many of you don't have the foresight to think through three or four plays ahead of you? You know, my, my family likes to, to play pool. We're not very good. <laughs> They're all right here. Some are better than others. Uh, but the idea of, you know, a game of pool is not necessarily about the shot that you have. It's about the shot that's going to be next and the shot that's going to be after that. Think about things in your life. When it comes to looking forward, have you calculated have you sat down and thought through this idea of looking forward and what the promises of God are there in front of you? And even put your own life against that. Could you juxtapose where you are in your life on top of that plan to determine if you're on the right track? 
that means you've got to lift your head up a little bit and think about the long game. Life on Earth is a marathon. It's the long game, not just about what's in front of us today. It's about thinking much more into the future. We also have another scripture in, in Proverbs 20, 25. It is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. Isn't that the way we're kind of built, though? We tend to think about the consequences either not at all or very late in the game. And we largely attribute this, by the way, to the young people we, we mentor to all the time. Because after all, as we get older, we don't fall into that trap. This is a young person's problem. You guys aren't thinking through. You only want what you want now. You're not thinking about the consequences of where this will be in five to ten years. And what age is that cut off, by the way? There is a cutoff from that. I'm thinking about 115, 120, right? It's your entire life. It's about looking forward and making sure we've done the right calculations. We want what we want now. Many times we're only thinking about today until we receive them. We pray sometimes. And sometimes we wait to pray until we put things in motion so that we can only have a singular outcome. We know where to go to get godly advice from other people, right? But why is it sometimes we don't seek it? Why do we go ahead and take the 19 actions that make it almost impossible to sort out, and then we go ask for help? I tell people all the time, come to me whenever you want. But if you've already made the 19 out of 20 decisions that put this in play, I don't know how I can help you. Right? I can hold your hand with you and I can tell you, wow, you've really got a complicated web here. How neat it would have been to come to me at the first onset of, look at what I'm thinking about doing. How many of you, when contemplating something major in your life, you've turned to God first in prayer. And I mean things like buying a house, buying a car. Think about the prayers that we offer. And I'm, I'm putting myself on report. It may not be the way that it should be. A prayer might be constructed, God, is this something I should be doing? Normally our prayers are, God, please make this come true. And then it doesn't, you're like, God, you don't listen to me. Maybe the answer should have been, this is not right in your life. Maybe it's right in your life, it's just not right right now. Godly wisdom seeks those types of decisions in advance because it's forward-looking. We need to make sure we've done that calculation in advance. We've got to ask the questions. What are the results? And how about this crazy one? Who's going to be affected by the decisions that I'll make? Do you realize there's a lot in the orbit, not just about you? The things that you do or don't, don't do can affect a lot of people around you. So you've got to take account for what that's going to be uh, looking like. Is it really worth the risk? And here's a crazy one. Is it even necessary? How many of these things do we put ourselves through when you, when you take account and you realize, why am I even doing this? Or why am I doing this right now? Maybe this is not a now thing. Maybe I've got enough on my plate. I can do this later or not at all. It's about seeking God's wisdom early. The second thing, and we only have a few of these. So if you're really hanging on for dear life, you can make it. Right? I mean, if you're counting seconds, the clock is going backwards, I promise you, you're on the home stretch already. Right? Getting here is a tougher battle than getting through this. So wisdom embraces the simple things. This is where I believe we lose a lot of people. Because of the simplicity of the Word of God, they view it as immature or juvenile. How on earth can you believe something that seems so antiquated? The stories that are told, it almost seems childish because after all, we're so smart. 
That's the implication. You're not. You still hang on to these archaic teachings? Yeah, the answer is absolutely. I sure do. Because they're timeless. And as time goes by, it only proves that they've been right all along and they continue to be right. But you've got to have a little courage in order to stand through some of that. Jesus told the very busy Martha that only a few things are necessary. Think about that. Only a few things are necessary. We should put that in all places of our house, but most importantly in your closets and your garage. Because that's where all the stuff that was so necessary to you before are now stored. Amen. Right? That's where they all are. These things were so indispensable to you at one point in time, but only a few things are actually necessary because we all have tons of stuff that you no longer even want. That seem to, and don't ask me to come clear it out. I've got my own problems at home right now. <laughs> I'm trying to clean out like stuff, you know, for the military folks or those who move a lot, we have the two moving sticker rule. If it has two moving stickers on it and you haven't even bothered to take it off, you do not need it because it hasn't been on display, it's time to go. Only a few things are necessary. For all of this in increasing complexity that we have, there's only a few things that are necessary that we should consider. So what are they? Well, we have this, this great idea in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, 20, verse 25. Think about this, when someone says, well, you know what, you believe these antiquated things. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That old adage, you know, I forget more than you'll ever know. I mean, God knows so much because he's the creator. And for all this idea of mankind and all this idea of knowledge and self-inflation, not even, couldn't hold a candle to God. Right? So what are these simplicities that we ought to talk about? How about this one? Obedience to God. Think about what that encompasses. Step one is we should follow what God says we should be doing. Imagine how many things in your life would be straightened out if you're obedient to God. If he's the maker and the master and your creator, how much that is our owner's guide in the Bible that we should be following. So step number one, be obedient to God. Maybe another one would be loving others. And we've got to be very careful about this because we often confuse empathy and sympathy. In fact, because we don't even understand the difference, we always use it in the same sentence just like I did. Right? Because we don't want to leave anyone out. There's nothing wrong with empathy. Empathy is the idea that I can relate to what you might be going through. But I don't feel it. Sympathy is when you're hurting, I'm actually hurting. It's not just a cognitive or intellectual thing that I'm experiencing, but I feel it in your life. And I'm there with you because I love you and you're hurting and I'm going to hurt along with you. We've got to be people that move beyond empathetic responses to true sympathetic responses because we care. So we love each other as Christ loved. That would be a simplistic piece. Imagine the world if, the, if people were obedient to God and loved each other. What an outcome that would be. How about humility? Servant leadership. Not thinking too much of yourself. Not that you're at the center of your orbit. We have a whole culture that are teaching young people that the whole world exists just for them. If you don't believe me, go out to a public place and watch how many people are unaware of other humans. I've had to stop people and go, you realize you're reading your phone in the entrance to the store. You are standing in the only doorway in and out reading, there are other humans here. Are you aware that there are other people here besides yourself? I just, step one is awareness. I just want to make sure that you can sense other people. 
And then you might want to sense the impact you're having on other people by blocking the door. By the way, I get some really great looks when I have that conversation. <laughs> and then maybe one area you ought to think about, Tim preaches on frequently, and we're doing a, a series on it now, on forgiveness. How about that? What if we had a culture where we could actually forgive people and we didn't hold grudges? Because how many things I know in this body, you've never done anything to offend anyone, right? I've asked you, you've told me. You know, I'm doing, I'm doing anything. I'm really, I'm very likable. Everybody loves me, right? But you know what? We offend people and we need forgiveness. Yet sometimes we're not that good about forgiving others. So just imagine those four simple changes. This idea of being obedient, this idea of real love, having this humility, and then forgiving. Aren't those some pretty simplistic truths? Where do we find those examples? We find them in the examples of Christ, and we find them in the root teachings of the Bible. I tell you what, what a prayer that would be if we could adopt those. I, wanna, I want to read something that Abraham Lincoln wrote in 1863. And the reason I want to read it to you is because I believe we could take it. Now, it's filled with language we don't use any longer. We used to write and speak a little bit differently. But if you could just picture modern language, I was going to take a stab at it, but I don't want to mess up history. Okay? So I'm going to read this, and I want you to think if this is an 1863 thing or a today thing. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been... Uh, preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power, and no other nation has ever grown like this. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched us and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken successes, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. You could put a stamp on that in 2023 and realize that as we get blessed increasingly, how easy is it to forget God? How easy is it to think that it's by my hands that we have all these blessings? It's a natural consequence. And unfortunately, that natural consequence leads to a lot of misery, a lot of self-reliance, and unfortunately, a lot of hate and deprivation. Wisdom also learns from mistakes. This is something I hope you take away this morning because this is a kind of a double-edged sword. We're supposed to be learning from our mistakes, not repeating them. We have a couple of scriptures that are pretty neat. They're bookends. 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So I'm a sinner preaching to sinners here this morning. If you don't like that, get over it. Because that's just the truth. That is a truth. No matter how good you think you are, we all fall, fall short because we're in the flesh. But we also are bookend by this in 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. So somewhere in between this idea of my condition and where I desire to be is a struggle. I want to fulfill that. I want to shed myself of the sin that I have in my life to be closer to God. 
But I realize that while I'm here on earth, I'm going to have a hard time. But I can't quit. I got a sign that sits on my desk that says the only way to fail with Christ is to quit. You just can't quit. Finishing the race is winning. Think about that. Just finishing that race with Christ is winning. What an optimistic way to look at things. What a, what a, a glorious joy and optimism we can have. Because we can finish that race. Because we're empowered by God to do so. You know, this idea of insanity, we're told, is repeating the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. So if you don't like your outcome, we've got to change some variables. You've got to look at those things in your life that need changing and realize you've got brothers and sisters who are here to help you, to pray for you. You also have God that promised to always be with you. You're not having to do this alone. So I want you to think about this idea. In Philippians 3, uh, 13 through 14, it says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward God is, uh, to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win uh, the prize for which God has called me heavenward to Jesus Christ. There's another one that goes with this in Luke 9.62. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of kingdom of God. The reason these two are important, this idea of striving forward and not looking behind you is critical. If you're to own up for your mistakes, which is what I'm, I'm trying to do in this third bullet, is draw your attention to the idea, it's okay if you have them, we should be learning. But there's a group of folks who unfortunately are imprisoned by their past. This idea of forgetting your past isn't amnesia. It's not that you should never even reflect on those things because sometimes your past actions for which you're not proud of can serve as a reminder of where you don't want to be in the future. This idea of forgetting, though, isn't completely erasing it from your memory banks. It's the idea that it cannot be an anchor for you moving forward. If you punish yourself in that, you're robbing your effectiveness. And how many examples do we have in Scripture of people who have done some terrible things and were picked by Jesus himself to get out and get busy for the kingdom of God? And if all they reflected on their past, to include sometimes murder, right? If they were hamstrung by that, they would never have reached their, their fulfillment. So we've got to be careful that while we're learning from mistakes, we don't imprison ourselves or shortchange the power of God. How many times do we look at people who have had kind of a checkered past or life and, and say to them, yeah, you're not really fit for this particular service? Terrible. It may have consequences on what you can do and where you can go. There are earthly consequences for all kinds of actions. But when it comes to God, there are no shackles on past sin. God has the power to free us in ways that man will always want you to remind you of your shortcomings. And God says, forget it. Press ahead. I've got something better for you. And if he's choosing you for that mission, you are chosen. And he's chosen all of us. You know, there's this idea. You think about how that affects our psyche and things. You know, for me, it's always been something like the rifle range or marksmanship training. They'll always tell you, once that round goes down range, I don't care if you like that shot or you don't like that shot, it's gone. Once it leaves the barrel, it's gone. Right? Once you're out working on something or doing something, if you're in a sports you know, activity or whatever it is, or you're doing something and you've made a mistake, it can't, it can't easily affect you what you do next. You can't allow it to. That particular action is gone. You learn from that and you don't let it affect that next step in your life. 
Very difficult. We can be our own worst critics, by the way. Some of you in here are terrible self-punishers. All you remember is, you know what, I've tried this 19 times and I just, I can't seem to do it, and you want to quit because you judge yourself so harshly. Yet God tells us he's empowering us to be free. You live and learn. Go to God, ask for forgiveness, and press on. That's really the message. That's what wisdom teaches us, right? Finally, wisdom strives for perspective. And I want you to think about this idea of a big picture. How many of us get caught up? I know I do this, so I'm going to put myself on report. I sometimes can get caught up in the weeds. I'm thinking about the now, today, this afternoon, tomorrow, all the things I've got to do, and we don't have this macro look of, uh, of what God looks at, 30,000 foot level of the big picture in our life. How many things have you believed have wrecked your day and wrecked your life that a year has passed and you don't even remember what they are? I always ask you know, my family members to think, is this whatever is bothering you, in five years is this going to matter? Because I have seen people have a complete meltdown over something that I'm like, you know, in 30 or 60 days, we're not even going to be talking about this. But somebody made a comment to you, and it's wrecked your entire week. It's wrecked your entire month. But in a year, you're not even going to remember this. Why don't we, there's enough trouble in this life to begin with on every single day. We should be focused on the bigger picture. God and godly wisdom sees the real big picture. And what is the end game? If we really want it to be serious, the end game is eternal life with Christ. The end game isn't here on earth. The end game is getting to that end game. Right? It's easier said than done, especially when you're going through trial. If you're going through a significant health issue or a loss of someone you love or, you know, loss of a job or just some kind of heartache, it's easy to dismiss this, to say, hey, don't worry about it. It's not going to matter. It does matter. We're people. And we suffer through a lot of things. But that big perspective says it's not just about here. There's something much bigger to come if we can only focus on the larger thing. And that means you've got to understand what business you're in. I ask people in church all the time, hey, what business are you in? And they take that literally. Well, you know, I'm in whatever business. Not really what I'm asking you. In your life, not your employment. What is your business? What's your mission is what I'm asking. Because we sometimes see this myopic look at something and we don't see the bigger picture. You know, if you go back to, uh, you know, I, we could pick a bunch of them, the railroad industry. The railroad industry thought they were in the railroad business. So when aviation came along, they didn't pay any attention to it. They should have realized they were in the transportation business. And then it didn't matter what the conveyance was. When the telegraph, you know, was in full swing they, and, and a telephone was coming online, they could have bought the patents for that in the late 1800s, all of it for like $40,000. They thought they were in the telegraph business. They should have realized they were in the communication business and the telephone would be next. And then digital transformation would have taken place. It's because they had too, too much in the weeds. So I ask you in this idea of perspective, what business are you in in the perspective? It should be God's business. And God's business causes you to zoom out a bit and realize that he has a bigger plan and a bigger purpose for you. That's what it's about, that bigger picture. It answers fundamental questions. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my existence? Where am I going? Why are these things happening to me? What's going to happen when my life is over? Where do you go to get an earthly book with those answers? There's a lot of them, by the way. But they lack authority. Maybe we should go to the person who has all the authority, who created life itself and has the keys of death owns it all, 
That's where our authoritative source is. So in conclusion, wrapping this thing up, earthly wisdom does a few things for us. It causes us to look ahead, that idea of forecasting. It has this idea of embracing the simple things. Simple doesn't mean bad. Simple doesn't mean unintelligent. Simple just means simple, elementary, fundamental, and their truth nonetheless. It learns from mistakes. We understand we're going to make them. We don't tolerate them, but we make them, and we don't punish ourselves for moving forward. And finally, it gives us this idea of perspective. And I want to read a quote from you. As a Marine, it pains me to read an Army quote, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you know, for those who get upset, I have nothing against the Army. Uh, there needs to be some service for people who can't be Marines, uh, some place for them to go. <laughs> you can serve in another branch. Not everybody can be a Marine. I get it. I get it. So I'm not going to hold anything against them. Uh, but I'm going to quote uh, Omar Bradley, because I think that what he wrote in a very quick paragraph here, in conclusion, is pretty profound. He came up in the World War II generation. Uh, he served during World War II. He became our first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He served in an era where we were experimented with five stars, because four stars weren't enough, apparently. Uh, and so he was a five-star general, only a few that we've ever had in history. Uh, he commanded uh, the First Army in the invasion of Normandy. That's not a small task. And more importantly, after that, he commanded the uh, 12th Army Group, which consisted of 43 regiments, 1.3 million soldiers. The largest command ever assembled in the history of our nation, never, never to be repeated. This is what he wrote. And tell me if you think this is close to what we've been describing today. With the monstrous weapons man already has, humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by its moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has clearly outstripped our capacity to control it. We have many men of science, too few men of God. We have grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Man is stumbling blindly through a spiritual darkness while toying with the secrets of life and death. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace, more about killing than we know about living. Let us never reject this idea of the wisdom of God. May we be like the proverb says, searching for it as a hidden treasure. If there's any need you have, anything we could pray for you about, please come forward as we stand and sing.